0: Okay, we are here to talk about parallel worlds, as you guys know. Uh, You have heard some visions of the future from some leading thinkers this morning. I am here to close before lunch, and I just want to add my own perspective, maybe even a dose of hope. And I want to start by asking one huge question. That question is this, what is the defining characteristic of this moment we find ourselves living in, of this age, of this predicament we find ourselves in. That is an absurdly large, preposterously large, and difficult question. Um, So difficult, it feels impossible to answer properly. But it's really in that difficulty that I think you can see the beginnings of an answer. Because my answer to that question, what is the defining characteristic of this moment, would be overwhelming complexity. Overwhelming complexity is the thread that has run through a lot of what you've heard this morning. It was certainly present in James's brilliant talk just before mine. It's like the world is becoming just one vast, overwhelmingly complex, interconnected system, so complex it's just impossible to make sense of it, even partially in the ways we used to. Okay? Complexity is the predicament we face as citizens. It's the predicament our governments face as they try to make sense of it all and plot a strategy out into the future. And I think this phenomenon we're here to talk about, parallel worlds, is intimately related to that complexity. We live at a moment of fractured narratives. We all sense that. It's like the world has become so complex that every person, every tribe, every community, every group is creating their own narrative, their own simplified mini story in some attempt to make sense of what is going on and draw some comfort from that. And of course, we all know the internet has massively amplified that by handing the power to hundreds of millions, billions of people to create their own personalized narrative, to create their own story, to fall down their own wormhole and draw some reason and some comfort out of the story. They're telling themselves. This is a map of um, social media connections by opinion. And it shows what we all already know many times over, which is, look, social media did not become this democracy, this nirvana of totally diverse opinion sharing. Instead, people fell into echo chambers. They ended up hearing opinions, hearing narratives that already echoed the simplified, comforting narrative that they wanted to hear, that they wanted to believe in themselves. Our politics is increasingly a story of simplified narratives. Yeah. You can laugh. (laughs) Simplified narratives, simplified stories. Think about the stories our governments tell us, our politicians tell us about the 2008 crisis, about the Middle East, about Russia, about Brexit in my country. Don't get me started on that. These are fantasies. These stories, we are told, are fantasies. They're fairy tales that bear very little relationship to the deeply complex technological, economic, social, historical forces that are going on underneath them. We used to think in the middle of the 20th century that this was still the big danger, authoritarianism a centralized power that was going to come along and steal our freedom from us, impose itself on us, and there would be nothing we could do about it. And of course, that was depicted most famously in this novel, 1984, by George Orwell. It turned out, though, that this man was closer to the truth. Aldous Huxley, in 1932, as you know, he wrote a book called Brave New World. Brave New World depicts a future in which citizens are willing participants in the creation uh, of a society that sells them a superficial version of human happiness while stripping meaning and stripping true freedom away from human beings. And the most disturbing thing about this society, brave new world, is no one can tell anymore whether it's paradise or whether it's hell on earth. That is something close to where we're at now. Okay? We, we were not No centralized power subjected us to this moment. We participated, we brought ourselves here, we bought, we consumed ourselves here, we queued up at the Apple store, we pointed the devices at ourselves, okay, and we let these technologies insinuate themselves so deeply into our lives that we can't tell anymore whether we are deliriously happy or tragically dehumanized. Sometimes it feels like we've gone from this, wanderer above a sea of fog, the iconic romantic image of man contemplating nature and the majesty of that relationship between the human being and nature to this. (laughs) Just a new breed of human being relentlessly commodifying his experience, turning it into data points that big technology can sell back to us. And these tools have become so seductive, so addictive, that you can't tell anymore whether they're the best thing in your life or the worst thing in your life. Like one very quick example. I'm sure many of you guys saw Snapchat three months ago, released its new gender swap filters, and millions of people, maybe including you, rushed back to Snapchat to try them out. For the last four weeks, I have been tortured by the clip I'm about to show you. I can't decide whether it's the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. This is a clip of a guy who figured out that when you turn your head away from the camera, the filter stops working. Okay? And look what he did with that discovery. Yeah, now, is is that amazing or is it terrible? (laughs) Yeah, give him a round of applause. He deserves it. He's famous enough already. Is that the best thing ever or the worst thing ever? I can't decide, okay? But the deeper, on a serious point, the deeper question is, is this society a utopia or is it hell on earth? Is this the way society was supposed to be? Is this how humans were supposed to live? These are huge questions, and it feels like the world has just become so complex, and the narratives have become so fractured that we can't answer them anymore. And look, what I want to say with this talk is that despite all that complexity, despite all those fractured narratives, there is one core narrative that underpins so much of this. There is one core narrative, one core story that underpins so much of how we got here and what this moment is right now. And that's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. It's the story we tell ourselves about what a human being is. Like, underpinning so much of this moment right now is a specific certain model of a human being. And that's a model of a human being, essentially, as an individual atomized rational decider, a rational choice machine. I'm talking about the model of a human being bequeathed to us by the Enlightenment, bequeathed to us by Enlightenment liberal humanism. And that's a model that has shaped our world in profound ways, in all kinds of ways. It gave rise to liberal parliamentary representative democracy in the form we have it today. Okay, it massively fueled the rise of the hyper-individualistic, hyper-consumer societies we live in today. And across the last 50 years, we've also kind of layered on a computer lens. Okay? So we'd see human beings not just as rational choice machines, but really as rational choice computers. So we've added this model that a human being is a kind of, you know, the body is a a piece of hardware running software that is a set of algorithms that is human consciousness. Okay? Now, look, that model of a human being did so much for us. Look at the societies we live in. Look at the affluence we live with. But that model was never true and its usefulness is rapidly diminishing. We know from behavioral economics, if we didn't know before, that human beings are not rational deciders. Human beings make decisions on the basis of all kinds of things, very, very rarely, if at all, rationally. Really, it's only economists that were surprised by this finding in behavioral economics. I think most people, the truth is most people understood that instinctively. As for this idea that human beings are essentially computers, that human consciousness is essentially algorithmic. The truth is we don't really understand human consciousness. But there are very good reasons, scientific, philosophical reasons that we'll touch on later, to suspect to think that human consciousness is not essentially algorithmic, that that is a false model of what a human being is. So look, I think it is time, it is necessary, to profoundly revise that model of what a human being is. I think we need to dispense with that model of, of a human being as an atomized, rational choice machine and build a new model. And what I want to give you here is just nothing more than some very early thoughts, some notes, if you like, on a new model for a human being. And it's a model for a human being based on these three things. A human being as socially constructed, as embedded in an environment, and as embodied in an organic being. Okay. I think if we can move towards that model, of what a human is, we can start to make some new sense of all this overwhelming complexity and plot a path forward. So what I want to do is just very quickly, pretty quickly, go through each of those three and talk to you a tiny bit about what I mean by each of them. So look, let's start with number one, socially constructed. What do I mean by this idea that a human being is socially constructed? I simply mean that this model of a human being as a totally atomized, sovereign individual who is entirely her own creation uh, is a fiction. It was a useful fiction in in a number of ways, but it's created some imbalances now that really need rebalancing. Because the truth, or closer to the truth, is that human beings are necessarily social animals. We're social creatures. We exist within a social collective. We exist within a society that sends us signals all the time that we can accept or we can reject, we can push back on. And it's in that process of acceptance and rejection that we build some kind of meaningful individual self, meaningful personality. And you really can't make sense of the idea of an individual human being without that social context to define the individual. Okay, We're necessarily social creatures. Now, even the most rampant individualist in the end, I think, would concede that. I'm not saying anything truly new here, but what I am Saying is we've lost sight of it. In the hyper-individualistic world we live in now, we have lost sight of that truth, and it is necessary to reassert it. And I would love you guys, as innovators, to direct yourself towards innovations that help reassert that truth about the human collective. And I just want to show you some innovations that I've chosen basically because they're just innovations that have poured in from our spotting network literally across the last couple of months that remind me, that embody these ideas, Okay, Like, take this very quick example. This is Alice. Alice is a service that essentially gives minimum wage, low paid workers in the US, a pay rise. The tax regulations in the US are quite unusual. Like, If you're an employee of a company, you can can claim certain expenses against your tax bill, like the expense of traveling to work, the expense of childcare, things like that. For minimum wage, low paid workers, they very, very often miss out on that benefit. Their employer does not set the system up to allow them to benefit from it. What Alice does is it syncs to your employer's payroll, it gives you a bank card. And when you spend on an allowable expense, you know, childcare, travel to work, whatever it is, it automatically claims it against your tax bill. And it gives minimum wage workers in this way in the US a pay rise on average between $500 and $1,000 a year. Now, this might seem like not a massive deal to you. You know, this is very far from the solution to all our problems, very, very far. But it usually takes an act of Congress to give minimum wage workers in the US a pay rise of that level. So it's a huge deal to the people we're talking about. Um, You can think about new partnerships. This is BMW, Ford, Volvo all coming together to create a third-party platform where data from connected cars will be shared, like data about road safety, about accidents, about all of that. So when we're driving in connected cars or self-driving connected cars, there will be a platform that collects real-time safety, road, traffic conditions, data, and distributes that to to the collective. And that will make driving safer. That will save lives. We're very, very far, of course, from a world where big car corporations are saving the world. Very far. Um, But this is a start, and I want you guys to think about it. This is a beautiful example. This is Huawei. Here's a great example of how to use technology to help repair social bonds and reassert the importance of the collective. Just check this out for a second.
1: Blind and visually impaired have many abilities that help them navigate the world. But there is one thing they can't do, read other people's faces and expressions. Could technology help them somehow see a smile? Huawei facing emotions. It's simple. Point the Huawei Mate 20 Pro towards a person. The camera then recognizes the emotion on their face. And AI then translates this into a unique sound. Now a blind or visually impaired person can actually hear your smile. This process happens in real time and works in offline mode, all made possible thanks to the Mate 20 Pro's advanced camera, AI chipset, and powerful processor. We worked hand in hand with the visually impaired community to create a user experience and app interface that was easy to navigate. The sounds representing each emotion were crafted in cooperation with a visually impaired composer. We also wanted to design a special holder to make using the app and phone itself intuitive. For this, we joined forces with a respected designer who created a unique holder in a form accessible for all. This simple app proves how technology can help more people to see more of the world.
0: Yeah, pretty cool, huh? Pretty heartwarming. So look, I would just love you guys as innovators to direct your projects towards innovations that reassert the importance of the collective, that don't just serve the individual that help bring people together in new ways. I think that's a powerful thing to be thinking about. Number two, uh, embedded in an environment. I simply mean that human beings are embedded in a natural environment. And it's not just any old environment. It is the Earth environment, OK? The planet Earth environment. We are in a host-guest relationship with the planet Earth environment. And that's not a contingent, like, optional, bolt-on aspect of our Human identity, our relationship with planet Earth is a necessary part of who we are, is a necessary part of the human identity. And only a tiny, minute, fractional number of people have ever exited the Earth environment. Okay, and obviously, no one has lived their life outside the Earth environment, obviously. <laughs> and, and the only reason I stress this is because we're often told stories about this sort of thing these days, okay, that we're going to strap ourselves to rockets, fly to Mars or some other planet, that we're going to terraform, build a permanent settlement, and live happily ever after. Okay, and I'm afraid, I think, that for the time being, these are fantasies peddled to us by technology and by billionaires who are just obsessed and high on capitalism's endless need for new frontiers. Like, we're 33 million miles away from Mars. Even if we do manage to get there, the challenges involved in setting up a permanent colony are immense. The challenges involved in setting up a society that offers anything resembling a human life as we've ever known it all through history are just unspeakably huge. Like, does anyone really want to live like this? I'm afraid, I think, for the time being, this is a fantasy peddled to us by people who don't want to stare the crisis that's happening in the Earth environment in the face, who don't want to admit that we can't just fly away from it. We have to act. We have to do something now. Human beings are relentless colonizers. And the colonization of Earth continues apace. We're going to add one New York City per month in urbanization for the next 40 years according to the World Health Organization. like That is a staggering fact. So we need change. We need innovation that will change the direction we're heading in. This is an example I love. I just wanted to show you guys super quickly. This is in Copenhagen. In Copenhagen, they've built the world's most advanced clean energy plant. It's a plant that takes urban uh, waste and turns it into clean energy. And on the top of that plant, they've built something called the Coppen Hill. They call it a landscape in a city. I just want to give you a taste of it with this video. Just check this video out. So yeah, they built a ski slope on top of this energy plant in the middle of Copenhagen. Uh, The architect behind it says it's based on the idea he calls hedonic sustainability. It's an idea that's about saying we need to get over the, the feeling that being sustainable has to be painful for us. This is Timothy Morton. He's probably the most important philosopher of the Anthropocene right now, of what it means to be a human at a time of planetary crisis. Um, And he says that, look, being sustainable shouldn't have to be a painful thing. Being sustainable means you can have a disco in every room in your house, is one of his most famous quotes. It just means you have to put solar panels on the roof. I think he would like the Hill, I think he would like the idea of hedonic sustainability. You guys aren't going to go and build a waste energy plant with a ski slope on the top. What can you do? You can direct your innovation efforts um, towards a model of a human being that sees us as necessarily probably forever embedded in the Earth environment. And you can do it in just tiny ways. You can make a tiny difference. Lots of tiny differences make a profound difference. This is Arcadia Power. This is a new service in the US that essentially acts as a clean energy consultant for users. It syncs to your energy account. It goes out to the market. It finds the cleanest energy available to you where you live. It negotiates the best price for you, and it automatically signs you up. This is an Australian company that used drones to shoot pellets into um, rural um, Burma to aid reforestation, Okay, So look, instead of using your drone, instead of using your next innovation to serve this ever more baroque set of needs and convenience and desire that consumers have, think about directing your innovation efforts towards a model of a human being as embedded in an environment. Um, Okay, number three, and the last one. Humans are embodied as organic beings. What do I mean by that? Look, there's this idea going around right now that algorithms will soon know us better than we know ourselves. And that is an insidious idea, because what it does is encourages a fatalism in the, in the face of a future totally shaped by algorithms. It encourages us to feel like, look, the Facebook algorithm, the Amazon, the Google, the Instagram algorithm, all these algorithms will soon eclipse my own knowledge of myself. And there's nothing I can do in the face of their attempts to shape our society, shape our democracy, shape my future. And I may as well just give up and let that happen. And look, it's true algorithms can do some pretty amazing things these days. They can take a picture like this, created by a human, and turn it into that, which is an even weirder picture. This is Google's deep dream algorithm. Um, but underpinning this idea that algorithms will know us better than we know ourselves is a deeper idea, an idea that's one level down. And that's the idea I talked about, I mentioned earlier, this idea that humans themselves are algorithms, that the human body is a piece of hardware running software that's algorithms that are human consciousness. And this is increasingly presented to us as though it's a kind of scientific fact. It's not scientific fact. We really don't understand the nature of human consciousness very well yet, but there are very good reasons to believe that it is not essentially a set of algorithms. Uh, Back in the 1970s, the philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote this philosophy paper. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. What is it like to be a bat? This was a philosophy paper about the nature of subjective experience, and essentially what it says is, look, Subjective experience, conscious experience, cannot be entirely reduced to a set of physical, functional descriptions. We can describe the brain of a bat. We can model model it algorithmically. But there's something essential. There's the subjective experience. There's the what it's like to be a bat that we will never capture in that process. And of course, human consciousness is the same, Okay. there's a certain unique way of seeing the world that we share as humans because of the apparatus we have inside our skulls. You know, the blueness of blue, the redness of red, the smell of your favorite food, the sound of a Beethoven, Beethoven sonata, that will never, the subjective experience of that will never be captured or adequately described by a set of algorithms. And look, I'm not saying that algorithms are not going to be able to get increasingly good at predicting our behavior. In in many ways, they will do. But it really pays to remember there's something essential about being a human being. There's something essential about the human way of seeing, about our subjective experience that cannot be described functionally, that cannot be described by an algorithm. And if you remember that, it gives you a kind of base camp a mental place from which to resist this idea that we are powerless in the face of algorithms and their attempts to shape our societies. What can you guys as innovators do about it? Well, interestingly, the most interesting resistance right now is coming primarily from the artistic community. This is a guy called Leo Salvaggio. He's an artist in Boston, and for the last five years he's been running flash mobs and installations and experiments where he gets the citizens of Boston to wear this mask, this very sophisticated mask of his face. OK, so he wants the world to look more like this. He's been doing it for five years. It feels like a very crazy thing to do, you know, five years ago. If you look at what's been happening in Hong Kong now and the weaponization of facial recognition in those protests, in the conflict between citizens and the state, feels like a very prescient thing to do. This is um, jewelry from Poland. Uh, The entire purpose of this jewelry is to confuse the Facebook facial recognition algorithm. It won an award, a design award at a recent design festival in Poland. Um, But look, there are things you guys can do that innovators can do too. This is a tool. This is airline privacy. This is a tool that lets airline passengers know which airlines use facial recognition and allows them to plot a path around the world from one destination to another without falling prey to facial recognition. And I'm just intrigued by the question Ooh, that slide doesn't really work. What is the unsubscribe button going to be for this age of facial recognition, for this age of biometrics? So look, I'm going to wrap up because I need three more minutes maybe, and then I'm out here. I think it is time to move to a new model of a human being. James talked in his talk about maneuvers. I love that word, the maneuvers we need to make. This is, I think, the core maneuver The principle maneuver. It's not about a new technology, it's not about a new app, it's not about a new innovation, it's about thinking again about our model of what a human being is. And that's what I would love you guys to do, to think about that model. This is a model I propose, constructed socially, embedded in an environment, embodied organically as human beings. And I would just love you guys as innovators not to just think about the next technology, not to just think even about the human needs that you're trying to serve, but think deeply about what is a human being, okay? and how can we innovate to inform a model that allows human beings to flourish, that is a more accurate model of what a human being truly is. One last thing. okay? This is a conference about digital innovation, and innovation is a wonderful thing, and it's brought us amazing benefits. Innovation is not enough. We are not just innovators, we are not just technologists, we're also citizens. We need collective action. We need legislation, okay, that helps us rebuild this model of a human to a more accurate, a more truthful model, one that recognizes the collective, we are socially constructed, one that recognizes our necessary relationship to the natural environment, one that recognizes we are embodied as organic beings. I think if we can build that model then we can start to resolve some of this complexity. We can start to collapse some of those fractured narratives into one core master narrative that allows us to plot a path to a brighter future. But that is more than enough for me. It's been super fun. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much.